0: Hebrews chapter 1, last week we covered the biggest portion of Scripture we've covered in a long time. Three verses. Verses 4, 5, and 6 we covered last week. is an amazing work of the Spirit of God. And uh, previous to that, we spent about three months just studying the first three verses. I want us to read verses 4, 5, and 6 because it picks up on a new theme that we're discovering now for the rest of the chapter. And then we'll read into verse 7, which is the ground that we'll cover today. So Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings a firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And verse 7 And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the church family. We thank you for the opportunity today to come together as a fellowship, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for new life, Lord. We thank you for little Luca Roetke that we got to celebrate. So thankful for that new little life. And, uh, Lord, we rejoice with that family. And we also grieve with other families in our community. Lord, we lift up the Coopers to you at this time. Bill, having gone to be with you, in glory now, Lord, as you hear my voice, he beholds your face. But we pray for comfort for Judy and the kids, Lord. We weep with them. We ask for supernatural comfort and strength to come upon them. Thank you, Lord, that though you dwell in a high and lofty place, you are near to the brokenhearted. Be near to that family today. Father that family. Shepherd that family, Lord. And shepherd us now. We declare you to be the head of this church, to be the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of this church. And we ask that as our shepherd, you would lead us today. We ask that you lead us beside still waters where our souls could be refreshed. We ask that you make us to lie down in green pastures where we could feast upon your truth. We ask that you would lead us in paths of righteousness that we could walk in a manner worthy of the calling that is upon our lives. Thank you that today, Lord, you've set a banqueting table for us in the presence of thine enemies. That you conquered sin and death and the devil on the cross and in the resurrection. We rejoice in that finished work today. Lord, anybody that's lacking in that zeal, restore unto them the joy of thy salvation today. And Lord, we rejoice in your word. We know that it is the inerrant, infallible, absolute, authoritative, very word of God. And we rejoice in it. Because in it we see you. And through it we're made wise. And as your Holy Spirit works through your holy word, our lives are transformed. And that's what we want, Lord. We want more of you in our lives, more of you, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, Jesus said about you that you're the teacher of all things. Would you please come and teach us now? I sent my my thoughts and my mouth to you. We ask together, hundreds of us pray together, that you'd please anoint me to communicate your truth, that I would rightly divide the word in a way that is honest, understandable, full of integrity, and that honors you, Lord. Jesus, that you would be more magnified at the end of this day than you were at the beginning in our hearts. That you would be more exalted in our community. We seek to open up the gates that the King of glory might enter in and take his place on the throne in this community. We want more of you for our coastline. More of you in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools. Come, King of glory, enter in. And bless us at this time as we study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of the book of Hebrews has been giving to us various excellencies of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about why this is, and I refuse to belabor the point again today. This is really a continuation of last week's sermon, so if you weren't here, you must get last week's sermon. Either get the CD or the DVD or download it or go to iTunes or do something, but get the sermon where we laid out very carefully, once again, the context and the reason why the author sees it as imperative that he asserts to these frightened Hebrew Christians the excellency of the person of Jesus Christ. And in the first three verses, we have eight different excellencies that are communicated to us. Firstly, that Jesus is a full and final revelation of God, that he's better than all the prophets. Secondly, that Jesus is the heir of all things. Third, that he's the creator of all things. Beyond that, that he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Seven, he's made purification for our sins. And finally, number eight, that he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have in those first three verses those eight excellencies of the person of Jesus Christ. And then last week, as we went through verses 4, 5, and 6, we discovered two more excellencies. Number nine, that Jesus is better than the angels. And number 10, that he is the one that the angels worship. And then in our text today, verse 7, we'll discover an 11th excellency. That is that Jesus created and is served by the angels. We must understand that. Jesus created and is served by the angels. Now... For us, it doesn't seem as potent a question. But in context, these frightened Hebrew Christians who are having their lives threatened by the Caesar Nero in the face of persecution, their religion, Christianity, having become religio illicita, an illegal religion, a a capital punishment, they're frightened. And what we see as we study the whole book is that they're beginning to backslide They're beginning to turn away. They're beginning to walk away from their Christianity in the face of adversity. Now, we know that that's the last thing that we want to do, but it's often just what we do, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. We often begin to walk away from the center of our faith in the faith of adversity Well, what we need to do is cling to the person of Jesus Christ. And so the author here is wanting to get them clinging. He's wanting to get them once again clinging to the person of Jesus Christ, so he exalts the person of Jesus Christ in their hearts and their minds through the communication of the epistle to the Hebrews. And the reason now why he turns to angels, three verses on all those other excellencies, the whole rest of the chapter, speaking of the fact that Jesus is greater than angels, the reason why he presses this point so, so powerfully is because the Jews had a great angelology, or that is to say, angels were big in their theology. And so subsequently, angels were big in their psyche. And and one of the things that we didn't highlight last week that came out from a young lady in one of our home groups, and I thought it was brilliant, was this. That for Israel, angels had often acted as deliverers. Throughout Israel's days, angels had often acted as deliverers. Think, if you will, of Genesis chapter 19. God was gonna judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Abraham and Lot and their families were there. And so it was angels that came in to retrieve Abraham and Lot and their family members and to get them out of Sodom and Gomorrah that the wrath of God might come. So angels are acting in a delivering sort of manner. Think, if you will, of Daniel. Daniel, who looms so large in the Hebrew psyche. Daniel, in Daniel chapter six, he was thrown into the lion's den for praying to the God of Israel when Nebuchadnezzar had decreed that nobody could be prayed to except for him. Daniel said, well, I'm not praying to you, man. I'm praying to the God of Israel. And he got thrown in the lion's den, and the expectation was that he would be devoured by the lion, and so he should have been. But who stopped the mouth of the lion? It was an angel. An angel came and stopped the mouth of the lion. Therefore, again, in Jewish history, we see an angel operating as a deliverer. Think, if you will, of 2 Kings chapter 19. Israel, in the face of tremendous adversity, an Assyrian army numbering 186,000 soldiers camped out against Israel. And an angel of the Lord comes in the night and wipes out 186,000 Assyrian soldiers in one evening. And so there was this history that Israel was aware of that in times of adversity, it was sometimes an angel that practiced deliverance for them. Now, when they got involved in Christianity, they fully expected that Jesus was the once and for all deliverer, amen? They fully expected that, but their faith is not panning out the way they thought it would. The kingdom hadn't come in the way that they had necessarily expected, and once being a religion that had some favor with Rome, they now find themselves the object of scorn, persecution, murder, and slaughter. And so they're, 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 they're on their heels. They're spinning a little bit here. They're in a difficult place. And you know, it was only a few years ago that Peter was imprisoned in Acts chapter 12, and it was an angel that delivered him. Same situation, a government that was hostile. He was imprisoned for the faith, same thing. And an angel delivered him. So perhaps they're beginning to think maybe it'll be angels that deliver us. But you see, the author's wanting to impress upon them that Jesus is greater than anyone or anything that has come before. That what we have in the person of Jesus Christ is greater than anything that was ever offered in the economy of God previously. But they're feeling a little bit like the men on the road to Emmaus. Remember the men on the road to Emmaus? These were some unnamed disciples of Jesus Christ, and they have been following Jesus Christ. But after the crucifixion, After the actions of Rome, this same government, they became disillusioned, they became frightened, things were panning out the way they thought they would, and so they began to bail out in the face of that adversity. They hadn't seen the resurrection yet, but it's Sunday morning, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus. And they said, this one, Jesus, we thought he would be the one to redeem Israel." They thought that their hopes were dashed. But what did the Lord do? The Lord came and met them in that place. The Lord met them there, and he revealed himself as the one who is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, and Rome, and the world. Yeah. And so the author of Hebrews wants them to have sort of an Emmaus Road experience here. They're spinning, they're back they're on their heels, but he wants to highlight for them once again the person of Jesus. And don't forget this. The whole goal of the book of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is better than. Better than what? Period. (laughs) Jesus is better than. That you fill it in, whatever it is, brother. Jesus is better than. That is the whole goal of the book of Hebrews. And to show then that the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ is better than the old covenant that came before. And so what he wants to do in showing Jesus as superior to the angels is show the superiority of the covenant that Jesus is a mediator of. Remember 1 Timothy? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is a mediator of the new covenant. But we learned last week in Galatians chapter 3 the angels were viewed as being mediators of the old covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. So if he could show Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, to be superior to the mediators of the old covenant, then they would know once and for all that the new covenant that they have in Christ Jesus is superior to the old form of Judaism, and so there's no reason to look back, no reason to go back, no reason to slide back, but hold firm, stand firm, keep the faith, fight the fight, finish the course. And what he does in trying to convince them is he argues with them from Scripture. They didn't have the New Testament at the time yet. It wasn't all written down, codified, and canonized. And so Scripture for them was predominantly the Old Testament still. And so he's going to argue, listen very carefully, he's going to argue for the identity of Jesus Christ from Scripture now. We are entering a period during the year when people are interested in Jesus. Easter. People are interested in Jesus. That is evidenced by the fact that you will see in the next couple weeks on the magazine stands all sorts of cover shots of Jesus. I don't know where they got the photos, but they have them all sorts of cover shots of jesus newsweek will do a jesus thing u.s news and report will do a jesus thing all oh, they do every single year pbs will have some jesus special the history channel will have some jesus special on the historical jesus now all of these entities are strictly money making ventures period They would not be talking about Jesus in the weeks to come if it didn't make them money. It wouldn't make them money if people were not interested in the person of Jesus. Okay, they are. Now, Newsweek has not been authorized to talk about Jesus, nor has PBS, nor has a history channel. There's only one entity on the face of the earth that is authorized to represent Jesus Christ, and it's you and I the church universal, the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. We are the only ones who are the authorized representatives. We are the ones who have been commissioned, given authority to act on behalf of another. We are his ministers of reconciliation. We are the ambassadors of Christ. Therefore, we must be more communicative than Newsweek. We must be more communicative than the networks. We must be the voice that defines to the generation who Jesus Christ is. Because there's a lot of different Jesuses out there, my brothers and sisters whom I love. There are a lot of different Jesuses out there. Now, the message of Jesus never changes. But the language, the tone, and the tenor, the methodology by which we communicate does change time to time, culture and culture. We contextualize the message. Paul was a pioneer of this. Paul said, I'm willing to become all things to all men that I might, buy, buy, I might win some of them by all means. I'm willing to become all things to all men. He wanted to do whatever was necessary to communicate the gospel to people. He would contextualize his message. He would speak in language that resonated with them. You understand this? The message never changes. It's the gospel. The message never changes. It includes sin and judgment and the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to glory and his coming again. The gospel message doesn't change. But we need to be wise in the way that we communicate it. But there's one methodology that should never change in light of popular methods and that's this. The same methodology being employed by the writer of Hebrews. We should use scripture to communicate who Christ is. There's all sorts of neat little ditties that the Christian community has come up with. There's all sorts of cute little illustrations that the Christian community has come up with and all these little analogies and stuff, and those are just that. They're cute. But only this has power from on high. This is the inerrant authoritative word of God. Only this has power from on high. And so if we want to communicate powerfully the truth of Jesus Christ, we need to communicate Scripture. Now, it doesn't matter if you ever know chapter or verse. It does not matter. Those were added by people later on. They're great. They help us navigate. I don't care if you never know a number, but you must know the words after the number. You must know the words after the number. We must drench ourselves in the Word of God that we can communicate the truth of Christ. We must drench ourselves in the word of God that we can communicate the truth of Christ. The word of Christ has got to be dwelling richly in us, as the book of Colossians says. We can communicate it in language that connects, in language that resonates, in language that is understandable. We don't have to say these and those. And in fact, probably shouldn't. We could communicate in a way that connects, but there's power in this. Yes. This is the word of God. There's power in this. And and as we endeavor to communicate to a generation who is lost and broken and hurting and going to hell, we had better be able to handle accurately the word of truth. Now, he's dealing with some people who are scared and broken. Numbers of them have been murdered. Peter and Paul will lose their lives in this neuronic persecution, this persecution under the hand of Nero. He's dealing with some very frightened individuals up against tremendous adversity. And so what does he do? He goes to the Scriptures. He takes them to the Scriptures to communicate who Jesus is. And so he starts quoting the Old Testament starting in verse 5. And in verse 5 he quotes Psalm 2. We talked about that last week and it it was homework for you to read that. He quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and he shows us how both of those passages are talking about Jesus. They had an immediate context, and immediate fulfillment, but ultimately they were talking about Jesus, and both of those talk about the kingship of Jesus Christ, his sovereignty over the nations, and his perpetual ruling on the Davidic throne. And then in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 97, which talks about the power and dominion of God. And he takes a psalm, which is very clearly talking about the one true God of Israel, and he applies it to the person of Jesus Christ. And argues then, effectively, that Jesus Christ is God. There's nothing for them to go back to. They have everything that they need in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 4 and 5, by using the Old Testament, by using the Scriptures... He clearly shows the position of Jesus as over and above the angels. Clearly shows that he is over and above the angels. And now he's going to speak about the angels in verse 7 and show that they are clearly under and beneath and submitted to the person of Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 7, And of the angels, the previous verses were about the Lord, And of the angels, God says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? The who in view here is God. He's the one who makes the angels, who makes his angels, notice that they're his, who makes, who creates his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Now, what does it mean that they're winds and flames of fire? I don't know exactly, but it sounds cool, right? I don't know exactly what it means. It might be speaking of of the way in which they minister, that they're swift and they're powerful. And that's certainly descriptive of angels. Angels need to be swift because they are not omnipresent. They are not. They are spirits. God is spirit, but God is spirit and omnipresent. They are spirits, but bound to location. They can't be everywhere at one time, so they got to be quick because they have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so when it says they're like winds, it might be talking about the fact that they are swift. Think of who's, who's the main messenger angel in the Bible? Gabriel, Gabriel, Gabriel. We just picture him not as a snail, do we? But just quick. And then it speaks about that they're like fire, which might speak about their might and their might in ministry and their might in warfare their might in ministry and in warfare. And they are warring spirits. And when we think of the primary the primary warring angel on behalf of God, who do we think of? Michael. Michael the archangel. And so it may be a description of this fact, that they are swift and that they're powerful in their ministry, and so they are. Other commentators suggest that it speaks of the mutable nature of angels. That is, they're liable to change. The mutable nature. They are liable to change. God is immutable. It's a good thing, it means He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a wonderful truth that we could take to the bank. Because then we could look at our scriptures and see how God deals with people and know that the same God is dealing with us today. We can expect the same righteousness and the same mercy and the same grace and the same presence and the same providence. He's the same yesterday and today forever. He is not capricious. The God of the Quran is capricious. Allah is capricious and given to change and mood swings. Very obvious if you read the Quran. But the God of the Bible, and they are not the same, the God of the Bible is unchanging. There's no shadow of shifting in him. He is immutable in his character, and that's a good thing, because he's perfect. Therefore, he shouldn't change, nor does he have a need to change, because he's perfect. But this may be speaking of the mutable nature of angels, that they change and they could change at the command of God. I don't know what the wind and fire means, but it sounds cool. The main point is this, though. The primary assertion here is that angels were all created by Jesus. Now, let's get something straight. We all know this, hopefully, but our neighbors don't know this, our coworkers don't know this. Our schoolmates don't necessarily know this. Our family members don't necessarily know this. Know what? This. That Jesus is the uncreated one. Jesus is the uncaused cause. Jesus is preexistent. He has always been. Yeah. Why? Well, because of what it means to be God. What does it mean to be God? It means to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what God is. One what, three who's. What does it mean to be God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One what, three who's. One essence. Three persons. The Trinity. A triunity. And so Jesus, as a member of the Trinity, has always been, because God has always been, foundational to our understanding about God. He's the uncaused cause. And you do not have God without the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. So Jesus has always, always been. He is the uncreated one. He is pre-existent. But not everybody believes that. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses certainly don't believe that, and there are many of them in our community. Many of them in our community. They visit our church from time to time. They will come to your house eventually. Now, here's the problem. They tout themselves in the popular media and in literature that they provide as mainline Christians. And they will say to you, and they will say oh, I, and they will say to our friends, I believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world. You believe in Jesus as a Savior of the world. We believe in the same Jesus. No, we do not. We must define our terms. I'm desperately seeking to equip you guys to communicate who Jesus is in this generation. We must define our terms. When they say Jesus and we say Jesus, we're not talking about the same thing because they're talking about one who was created. We are talking about the uncreated one, God himself, and there's a big difference between those things. Scripture teaches that Jesus is preexistent, he has always been, and that he himself is the creator of all things. I want us to go to 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. as we look at a text that is a favorite text of both the Orthodox Christian Church, you and I, and of the cults. A favorite text by both. And so we need to know what it says as we're talking about the identity of Jesus Christ and Him being greater than everything else. Colossians chapter 1, we'll look at verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God. That word in Greek is icon. Sounds like icon, doesn't it? Sounds like that Xerox machine company, icon. He is the icon of God. What does that mean? That Greek word means exact replica or representation. The very substance or essential embodiment of something. Further clarified for us in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 where it says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What we have in the incarnation in Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We do not have part God and part man. We have Jesus as being fully God and fully man. These are what the scriptures declare. It doesn't matter how our brains handle that. It's what the scripture says. It's what they teach. That Jesus Christ is fully God, and yet he is fully man. And the two are not, uh, they don't coalesce, they don't commingle, they're not convoluted in some way. He is the God-man and all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. This is very important because a lot of people would like to have a Jesus who is just in bodily form. That's what the Jesus seminar sought to do some years ago, was they wanted to strip away from him his deity and his authority and his power and his preeminence and his preexistence and his ascension. And they wanted to deal with a Jesus who was strictly a Galilean peasant who said some nice things and did some wonderful acts but got in trouble with the Roman government. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's fully God and fully man. Now, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. We talked about that word firstborn last week. I want to belabor it a little bit this week because it's in a different book, so I'm going to teach it again. Firstborn of all creation. Now, now, the cults love this because if you would just give it a cursory reading, if you want to dig into it, it sounds like firstborn of all creation. Okay, he was the first one who was created. That's what it sounds like. He is the first one who was created. And that is exactly what some of the cults teach. Jesus is very important, they'd say. We don't have a low view of Jesus. He's very important. First one created, and then he helped to create other things. That's not what's being said here. That's a misunderstanding of the term firstborn. I taught you the Greek word last week. Does anybody remember it? Pretty close. Prototakos. It's hard for the English tongue to say, but you are good, Cynthia. Good job. Prototakos. Okay, prototakos. You don't ever have to say it. I'm kind of turned on by things like that. Prototakos, firstborn. Here's the deal. It has nothing to do with time. It has nothing to do with chronology or birth placement. It is not a description. It is a position. When someone is called the firstborn, it's not a description of the chronological time in which they were born in relation to others. It is a position. It means the chief one. The concept originally came to be uh, associated with children who were the firstborn because they were generally the heir to all that the father had. But well, we see that God even turns that on its head all the time throughout the Old Testament. But the term only became associated one with one who was chronologically born first. But that's not what it means. It's not a description. It's a position. And we saw this last week when we saw it applied to King David In Psalm 89, verse 27, God says of King David, I shall make him my firstborn. What? David's not the first person ever made. That was Adam. And he's not even the first among his brothers. He was the youngest among his brothers. What is God is so confused? What is he talking about? No, we're confused. We don't understand what firstborn means. It's a position, not a description. I will make him my firstborn, the highest of all the kings on the earth. There's a description the highest of all the kings on earth. Firstborn is not a time word. It's a right to rule word. It speaks of authority, honor, position, and right. Now, here's why I chose to speak about that again because it's very important as we look into verse 16. Don't look yet. You have on your lap a new American standard, or an NIV, or a King James Version, or a New King James Version, or a New Living Translation, or a Revised Standard, or a New English, or something like that. And those are all good and great. I have no problem with any of those. But there's another so-called translation floating around that's bad. It's called the New World Translation. It's a translation that's used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's been condemned by every Greek grammarian and scholar who's ever handled it. They have outright condemned it as a bad, fallacious, broken, incorrect, contrived manipulation and distortion of the original text. Now in verse 16, your Bible says something very clear. In the New World Translation, it's been changed. In our Bible, it says this. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. It's very clear. Everything was created by Jesus Christ. Whether visible, you and I, or invisible, the spiritual world, angels, so on and so forth, all things were created by him and they exist for him. He's the originator and the consummator. Everything has its origin and its finishing in the person of Jesus Christ. But in this passage, this verse and the verses that follow, the Jehovah's Witnesses add the word other four times. Whoa, 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 what? They add? They add. They add the word other to the Bible. Why? Well, because this is very much clear that Jesus is the creator of all things. And so they said, well, we we don't like that. We think that he was made because we don't understand firstborn or the rest of the scriptures. And so in verse 16, they have it saying, for by him all other things were created. And they do that several times throughout the chapter. There's a lot of different Jesus's out there, guys. And you and I have been authorized, commissioned, empowered, called, anointed, and sent By the Apostle Jesus Christ. Capital A Apostle. The one who was sent and the one who sends. Who said in his high Priestly prayer in John 17, Father, as you have sent me, I now send them into the world. And we have to go into the world armed with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. That he is the uncreated one, the uncaused cause, the only unique son of God, the only savior of the world the risen and living Lord who is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. This passage clearly teaches that Jesus created all things, including angels. And the point being from Hebrews is if he created angels, then he's greater than angels. No duh. If he created angels, then he's greater than angels. But, but here's what's going to seal the deal for us. And this is something that you could put in your toolbox. Remember, I shared with you last week. Anytime you see the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, you want to go back and look at the Old Testament passage. Because in the Hebraic Jewish mindset, and the vast majority of the authors in the New Testament were Jewish, in that Jewish mindset, when they were quoting Scripture, they had the broader context in mind. That's how you say we're to handling Scripture. They weren't privileged or handicapped by chapters and verses. You couldn't say, "Open up to Isaiah 53." What? And said you'd have to say, "He who was pierced through for our transgressions." Oh, okay, that part of the prophet Isaiah." But when you said that line, because they memorized scripture, they would have the whole context in mind. And so it is then when they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when they quote a portion of the Old Testament, there's a whole context behind it. And to your little Jew to Gentile brains, it might not mean anything. You read it in the New Testament, you're like, duh, well, yeah, okay, what? But if you'll go back and you'll look, you'll discover the power behind the passage. So in Hebrews chapter one, verse seven, the author there is quoting Psalm 104. Let's go look at it. Psalm 104. Now, Psalm 104 is talking about God's sovereignty and care over creation. God's sovereignty and care over creation. And it's a song of praise. You realize that the Psalms are predominantly songs. And Psalm 104 is a song of praise. And those who know such things, those who study such things, have written and I have read that many believe that Psalm 104 is one of the songs that would have been sung by the worship leader as he led Israel in corporate worship at the temple. Just like we have our songs, and we put them up on PowerPoint, and like Chris Lazo is leading us today, you know what I mean? And sometimes Dominic leads, and sometimes Zoe. Just like we have worship leaders, Israel had worship leaders. David was one of them, and he was a psalmist, he was a songwriter, and a musician. And we believe that this is one of the songs that the congregation of Israel would have been led in as they gathered in the temple. Now, before we get to it, you always want to look at Scripture in context, it's very helpful. And you might think that, well, there's not so much of an immediate context for psalms. There's a broader context, a historical situation in which they were written, and it's wonderful to discover that. Like you might read some psalm, and then later on you find out that David wrote that when he was hiding in a cave from Saul, fearing for his life, and it just brings a psalm to life. It's like a whole new worship experience when you see that. But also, there's a context in which they're placed. Because Hebrews who understood Their worship life, their religious structure, and their history put them in a certain order in ancient times. And so that order is helpful to us in understanding. There's a flow, and there's an ebb to it. It's meaningful to a certain degree, and so it can help us to look at a certain psalm and realize the surrounding psalms shed some light on that. And such is the case here. Psalm 103 is a great psalm. It's a psalm of David. That is a song of praise that David wrote about the Lord's mercies. It's a familiar one. In verse 12, it talks about the Lord removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. We have this wonderful two of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, verses 13 and 14. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's a father to us and a compassionate one. Verse 14, for he himself knows our frame that we are but dust. Wonderful passage. But that's not what I want to look at. Look in verse 19 now, keeping in mind that we've been talking about angels and Jesus' sovereignty over them. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. I want you to remember throne We're going to come back to that in a little while. His sovereignty rules over all. We're clearly talking about the God of Israel, right? There's nobody else that we're talking about. We're not talking about the Canaanite gods. We're not talking about Baal. We're not talking about Dagon. We're not talking about some eastern god. We're talking about the God of Yisrael, the one true God of the universe. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, remember like fire, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. There we get some insight about angels. That it's part of their occupation to bless the Lord, to worship their Lord, and the other part is to serve the Lord. They're ministering spirits, carrying out the will of God. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New. And we can expect that today as well, by the way. But here we see God establishing here in our minds his throne, his sovereignty overall, evidenced by the fact, who he is, is evidenced by the fact that the angels respond to the call to worship him and that they perform his word and obey his voice. Verse 22, Bless the Lord, all you works of his and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot, He walks upon the wings of the wind, some imagery there, speaking about his might and his glory. And then verse four is what's quoted by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1:7. He makes the winds his messengers, and flaming fire, his ministers. The wording's a little bit different in the New Testament. We've got some language variation. We're going from Hebrew to Greek and then to New Testament Greek. Don't worry about it. This is a passage that is being quoted. And it's speaking here about angels. He makes the winds, ruach in Hebrew, spirit, wind, angel. He makes the, I'm sorry, spirit or wind and then his messengers, angels. Flaming fire, his ministers. Now, notice. That in context, the he, the pronoun, is speaking about none other than God. There is nobody on the face of the earth that will disagree with you on that. You open up this Bible to anybody, and they will at least acquiesce. They will at least say, yes, this is talking about whoever the God of the Bible is. There's no question, no ambiguity to the pronoun he. This is talking about whoever the God of the Bible is and this God of the Bible claims to be the one whose throne is established in the heavens and who is sovereign over all. And then what the author of Hebrews does is he takes the fact that he makes the angels the God of Israel and he applies it to Jesus. There's no more sure way that he could demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no more sure way that he could show who Jesus Christ is than to apply this psalm in all the fullness of his context to the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no cult member that can argue against this fact. When they come to your home, sit them down, open up Hebrews 1:7, take them to Psalm 104, walk them through it from Psalm 103, and say, "Who are we talking about here?" And it's very clear that we're talking about the one true God of the universe, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and that Jesus is God. There's absolutely no question about it. Well, actually, there is. There's a lot. You'll hear it in Starbucks. The Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. You'll hear it among your classmates. Jesus never claimed to be God. That was all made up later on. Jesus isn't God. Really, who was he? He's a great prophet. Oh, what else? Teacher. Oh, he's a great teacher. Yeah, taught this coolest stuff. What else? He was a great moralist. He was a great moralist. Wait a minute. Notice that it says in verse 1 here Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. O oh Lord, my God. Who said that in the New Testament? Thomas. My Lord and my God. Thomas was the one who doubted. Thomas was the one who wasn't sure. Thomas was the one who thought, well, maybe he was a good teacher. Maybe he was a great moralist. Maybe he was a prophet to a certain degree. Thomas was the one who doubted. Jesus showed up in the midst of his doubt and said, Thomas, you want, you, you want to touch my wounds? You care to touch my wounds? Because I've got them here, Thomas. Thomas didn't even have to touch them. He said, my Lord and my God. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus did not correct him when that statement was made. Jesus had no problem correcting people who were in error. Have you ever read some of the things he said to the Pharisees? Did you ever read about when he made a whip and went up on the Temple Mount? I imagine when God makes a whip, he intends to use it. He had no problem correcting with a very forthright manner those who were in error. But when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, it was a declaration of worship and Jesus received it. That would then disqualify him from being a moralist unless he really was God. That would disqualify him from being a great teacher because if he wasn't God, he would have said, wait a minute, you're, you're incorrect. Let me instruct you. That would disqualify him from being a prophet if he wasn't really God and he received worship because the prophets were supposed to testify about God. You see, the only logical option to the historical record is that he is God. And when Thomas offered him worship, he received it. He did not correct him, nor did he refuse his worship. Nor did he refuse the worship of the outcast that worshiped him in John chapter 9, verse 38. Nor did he refuse the worship of the leper in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2 nor did he refuse the worship of the disciples in Matthew 14, verse 33, after Jesus had calmed the storm. Nor did he refuse the worship of the disciples when they again worshiped him in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. If Jesus did not believe himself to be God, he would have corrected them. These were Jews. These were Jews who lived and died by this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elehenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Jew prays it every day at this moment in history, and they did then. They live and die, and they have died. They live and die by the declaration that their God is one. So insistent upon this fact were they that they were excused from worshiping Caesar like everybody else in the Roman Empire had to do. They were so insistent that we have one God that they became a government-sanctioned religion under Rome, the only one that was excused from Caesar worship. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These were Jewish men that fell to their knees and worshiped Jesus Christ. They never would have imagined it if they weren't absolutely positive that he was God in the flesh. And he was declared to be the son of God with power, Romans four says, through his resurrection from the dead. And that seals the deal. End of story. When he rose from the dead, it was a stamp of validity on his claim and identity that Jesus Christ is able to be absolutely exclusive he put a stamp of authenticity on his statement in John 14, chapter 6, where he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And to John ten thirty one, where he said, I and the Father are one. He is a risen Lord. He is a king of kings. He is a Lord of lords. Now, angels, on the other hand, freaked out when somebody began to worship them. Remember that? Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 10. John says, and I fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. The angel that's showing him all this stuff that's going, I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. Very different reaction than Jesus Christ when people worshiped him. Do not do that. And then he identifies himself. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the other apostles. I'm a servant to the most high God like you are, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. That is to say, all prophecy in the Bible has to do with the person and the identity of Jesus Christ. And so the angels refuse the worship of humanity, which is sad, because there's people today doing this. And worship angels say, what are you doing? Except for fallen angels. That's exactly what they want. And they're deceitful. And they close themselves as angels of light, which is why we desperately need to make public announcements as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Unless there be any confusion as to whom the angels worship. Can we please read together, just because it's fun, Revelation chapter 5, and then we'll worship. Let's just end here. Revelation chapter 5. As I said, we're just going to read it through. I'm not going to make any commentary. There's probably going to be a lot that you don't understand as we read through Revelation chapter 5. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Revelation chapter 5. John writes and says in verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I told you the throne would be back. A book. Okay, a little bit of commentary. It says book or scroll, depending on your translation. The Greek word is biblion. That's where we get our word Bible. Okay, biblion. Excuse me. So it's a scroll, because back then they didn't have books like this. They just didn't have them. So I saw a scroll. What is the scroll? I don't know. It's really, really important. When it's opened up, a lot of gnarly stuff happens, and I could give you a lot of different theories from a lot of different Bible commentators. I'm not sure. Don't worry about it right now. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. got a scroll stuck in my throat, throat) (laughs) and I saw (coughs) a strong angel proclaiming with a, oh wow, I can't read it, (laughs) a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with four living creatures, Angelly type things. And the elders, I saw between there a lamb standing as if slain. He's not slain, notice, he's alive. He's a lamb and he's a lion. Who can that be? Uh, can you never say Jesus? When I say, who can that be? Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus, the lion and the lamb. <laughs> Jesus. Notice what it says about him. Having seven horns, horns speak of strength, authority, it's speaking of his omnipotence, and seven eyes, speaking of his omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, speaking of his omnipresence. So we have Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, presented here as omnipotent, all-powerful, presented as omniscient, all-knowing, and presented as omnipotent, all-powerful. Or omnipresent, rather, everywhere at one time. Jesus, all powerful, all knowing, everywhere at the same time. Verse seven. And he came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, who is being worshipped in heaven, Jesus. having each good job having each one harp. They have a harp. Isn't that cool? Just what you thought. (laughs) And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And now look. And they sing a new song, saying. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all the things in them, I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So, Easter's coming. We need to know who we're talking about. And when somebody's in error, we need to correct them with gentleness and with reverence. Be ready to make a defense for the reason for your joy. Amen? Lord, thank you for these beautiful truths. Thank you for this glorious gospel, the greatest truth in all the world. Thank you for it. And Jesus, thank you that in you we have the right God. You are the one. You are the one that all of humanity has waited for and has been longing for. You are the uncreated one. You are the one that spoke everything else into existence, and it all exists for you. And the angels and the creatures and the elders, they fall down, and they worship you, the lamb who was slain. And we want our church to represent that truth. Jesus, you are great and awesome. Yes, you came and you were born a virgin and you lived in a place called Nazareth and men spit upon you and they ripped your beard from your face and you were crucified but you rose from the dead. And that death you died to pay our price and that resurrection you experienced that we might have newness of life in you and you are the only savior of the world and we ask that you would loosen us to worship you God and that you would send us to proclaim you, Christ, that you would raise up in the midst here a faithful generation, men and women who are not afraid of other men and women, men and women that fear God, men and women that have been in your presence, who have tasted of your glory, who have seen, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have been set on fire by your spirit, in whom the word of God dwells richly, men and women that would go forth unto the community and the nations to proclaim and to pronounce that you are God and there is no other. Raise up men and women in our midst that are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Loosen our lips with this wonderful truth and make us a community that worships and adores you and loves and cares for one another. We praise your name, Lord. Prayer team will be up here. Come and get on your face before the Lord. Communion is here to celebrate what he did on the cross.